Hey there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. It is created by journalists and for journalists. And as a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly. Experts with so much knowledge and insight, and yet it rarely makes it past the headlines. So today, I'm bringing on one of those experts to answer all of the burning questions I've ever had about their field. I'm chatting with Mark Patry. He's the owner of CNH Tours. He's a General Assembly member for the Charles Darwin Foundation and a former UNESCO World Heritage Center point person for Galapagos Conservation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It is so nice to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here, Catalina. Okay, so Mark, tell us, what exactly is a World Heritage designation? Like, what does that even mean? Well, I think most of us have all heard about World Heritage Sites, but we don't really know what it means. Um, The World Heritage Sites are uh, a list of places on Earth that are considered to be of outstanding uh, importance for for either natural or cultural heritage values. And it's a bit of like a private club. It's a, not any site can be considered a World Heritage Site. You have to apply, a country has to apply to get inside, to get their site recognized. So they have to meet certain criteria and they have to be, they have to show them to be amazing on the global level, but also they have to show that they're well conserved. And if they meet all these tests, UNESCO, the United Nations agency that's in charge of managing the World Heritage Convention, they'll let them in the club. They'll designate them. They'll put them on the World Heritage List. So it's a, it's kind of like a private club where people want to get in. They have to meet standards. But once you get in the club, you have to maintain those standards because if you don't, they might kick you out of the club. That's fascinating. How long does it take to achieve a distinction like that? And, and how do you go about getting that distinction? What thresholds does a place need to meet? Well, it's, you know, as uh, time goes by, it gets more and more complex because at the beginning, the first site ever inscribed was happened to be the Galapagos Islands back in 1978. And the, the government of Ecuador at the time just put together a two or three page, uh, you know, letter basically saying, this is why we think Galapagos should be on this world heritage list. And the, the, the committee, which is comprised of representatives of countries, uh, 21 countries from around the world, they, they review all this and they decide whether or not it meets the standards. And back in 1978, the three pages is all it took. And they said, yes, you're in the club. But now if a country wants to uh, propose a new site for the World Heritage List, it's a lot more complicated. As you can understand, over the years, the, the, the World Heritage uh, committee and it's it's uh, the conventions become more complex and you have to meet all kinds of other technical requirements you have to justify all kinds of different standards why you're the best in your category and no one else is as good as you and uh, sometimes it takes two three or even five or ten years of trying to meet the standards before the world heritage committee will let you in onto the world heritage list So I think a lot of us know that the Galapagos are very special. And one of the reasons we know that is because back in 1835, Charles Darwin visited the islands for five weeks. And from his observations, he wrote his famous book, The Origin of Species, and described his theory on evolution. Since then, as you mentioned, it's become the first World Heritage Site. You've also spent a lot of time on the islands. I would love to know, why do you think the Galapagos are so special? Why do I think the islands are special? Well, you just you named a few reasons right there. Um, 
you got to kind of understand why, where they come from. The Galapagos Islands, they're like volcanic, right? So they, they came out of the sea with volcanic eruptions, kind of like Hawaii did. So at first, all there was was hot lava that, was, that came out of the water and cooled down and became sterile rocks above the sea surface. And it, it, took, it took a long time, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years for life to appear there. Of course, birds made it and maybe birds brought some seeds. And then uh, maybe if some things floated in from the mainland, some plants, you know, some, you know, you got a big storm and some of the trees and the vegetation on the mainland in South America gets washed out to sea. And some of it happens to make it to Galapagos, which is 600 miles off the coast. Uh, and establishes itself there. And because you have like a whole bunch of different islands in Galapagos, big ones, small ones, tall ones, short ones, I mean, low altitude ones, every, every one represents a different uh, environment. So these same plants might have come in from the mainland, but landed on different islands. And, and to survive, some of them didn't survive, some of them did. And over the years, they, they, they had to adapt. So there were a few genetic uh, mutations or variations, and some of Types of plants flourished on one island, and whereas a different version of that plant flourished on another island, and you could say the same for any other types of animal species that arrived there. So over the five million years or so that Galapagos have been in existence, uh, they've been pushed, these, these species that came by and were one species when they first arrived, been pushed into different kinds of species now. We, we talk about the famous Darwin finches. Uh, one species of finch arrived maybe a million years ago, and today you'll find uh, over a dozen species of finches that no longer breed together. They don't recognize anymore oh, each wow. other. And, and that's the kind of stuff that Darwin saw. And he, he, he made those conclusions, and, and, and it helped him understand what was going on and how new life came to be on the planet. Uh, and uh, so that's really what makes the island special. This is what makes them special on a technical basis, for sure. You kind of have to think about that because uh, if you do spend some time thinking about it, you will, you know, you'll be you'll, you'll be amazed. But otherwise, another thing that makes them very special is that the animals there have very little fear of humans. So when you know when you're eating at a little restaurant outside there, you might have to flick the finches away because they want to come to your plate and steal your rice, <laughs> or the sea lions will come and smell your feet. And if you're snorkeling, the the, the penguins, the sea turtles, the sea lions, uh, they're they're all around you, and you you have to try not to touch them because they're so close to you. They're they're checking you out. So in that sense. That other side of Galapagos makes them special as well for the visitor, the casual visitor who's there to get close to wildlife and experience, you know, the the, the connection we have with the, the, the animals there. You know, this is probably why it is so special and it has this really distinct designation as a World Heritage Site. Um, is there anything that could threaten the Galapagos designation? Well, let's talk about Hawaii again. Hawaii was... Uh, is very similar to Galapagos. It rose out of the sea as volcanoes and, and plant and animal life made it there and uh, evolved over the years. However, in case of Hawaii, humans first arrived, I think, six or seven or eight hundred years, a thousand years ago when the Polynesians arrived, just maybe uh, six or seven hundred years ago, I think it is, not that long ago. They arrived, they brought domestic animals, um, and, and, and as soon as other uh, aggressive species arrive in a, a, not a natural way and in, in big numbers, it upsets the, the, the local mix of species. So in, in, in Hawaii, for instance, a lot of the birds 
have become extinct. The original birds that were there. Uh, uh, when the, the white folks came along and settled, they brought even more species, especially now that we've got planes and boats coming back and forth all the time. So while Hawaii has lost a lot of its original species, in Galapagos, almost all of them are still there. Why? Because humans only arrived a couple hundred years ago. And because the islands are not a very propitious place to settle. It's quite, the water situation is not good. It's very rocky. There's not much good soil, not like Hawaii. So uh, Galapagos, despite not being as, uh, as impacted as Hawaii, is still very much threatened by the risk of the arrival of these introduced species who might come and disturb the entire ecosystems there. Uh, I can give you an example, goats. I mean, people used to transport goats all over in their boats because they would release goats on an island and they would breed like crazy and then they would have fresh meat. Um, and that's what happened in Galapagos. Pirates were there in the 1800s and released goats on the islands and the goats multiplied and started eating all the vegetation and turning forests into golf courses, basically and started wow. destroying the environment there. But you're also looking at insects and even parasites, even cats and dogs, they get there, they go, they become wild and you know, the birds don't know what a cat is and their cats easily, easily kill birds and dogs will easily eat uh, or kill iguanas on the beach. So that whole dynamic of introduced species to this pristine environment is one of the biggest risks for the long-term conservation of Galapagos biodiversity. So what was your job like when you were trying to help the island conserve uh, not just its special designation, but preserve a lot of its animals and its vegetation? Well, I had really, over the course of my, my connection to Galapagos, I've had two formal jobs linked to conservation. The first one is why they hired me there. We, they hired me to, to put together one of the biggest, or actually the biggest conservation projects ever in the history of the islands. We had to get rid of the goats and, and the biggest island. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm simplifying it a little bit because the story itself is quite long and complex. But goats, as I said, had taken over the island. They were destroying the habitat of giant tortoises, which are unique to Galapagos, along with many other species. And we had to get rid of the goats. So I know when I went there, my, my main project was to develop ways and re- get the financing for this big project so that we could eventually get rid of all of those goats. And uh, I could say the same thing. We also got rid of pigs on another island. The pigs are excellent at finding turtle nests and, and sea turtle nests and, and giant tortoise nests. They're able to find those nests and eat up all the eggs. So there is no young giant tortoises on islands where there's wild pigs running around. Um, and uh, so we got rid of all those uh, goats and pigs. So now giant tur- tortoises and uh, are now breeding and, and making young on these islands where before they were not able to. So that was the essence of my my, my work while I was there. Then I got hired by UNESCO, United Nations uh, Agency, in charge of the World Heritage Convention. And part of my job was to, to, to monitor the state of conservation of natural world heritage sites in Latin America and the Caribbean, and that included Galapagos. So I was kind of like the referee. I was kind of like the, 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 in the private club, the bouncer, if you like. I was there monitoring the people in the club, making sure they're behaving okay, and then maybe telling them, hey, hey, watch out. Uh, you, you know, this is not good. You got you to gotta improve your behavior here. And, uh, and so I had that kind of relationship with the government of Ecuador when I was there uh, in terms of uh, advising on the conservation of the islands. You know, I think like for someone that doesn't work in conservation, um, the idea of, oh, we need to remove this species, it's, it's, uh, it's so foreign and can seem so cruel, right? There's multiple ways that you can eliminate a population 
of goats, for example, from the island, right? You can make it so they can't reproduce anymore, or you can remove them, like move them somewhere else, or you can effectively like kill them. I wonder what was your approach and did you face any issues with the local population there where I imagine some of them might have relied on that source of food? Well, yeah, you ask a good question there, Catalina. I mean, uh, the local population, some of them are subsistence, uh, you know, people, right? They don't make millions of dollars and they're always, you know, trying to find a job or a bit of cash. And if, and if they have the chance to go out and find some meat in the, in the forest, they'll, they'll go out there and get it. So goats uh, and pigs, people relied a bit on that for, for food. But where we got, where we removed the goats, uh, it was in a remote place. It was difficult to get to. And it, it was simply not economically feasible for anybody to head out there and get some goats. So it was on a big, big island and a, and a big part of the island where nobody lived. So uh, in that case, uh, it wasn't an issue. We were concerned about perhaps the uh, re- reaction from uh, from uh, you know animal welfare company uh, uh, groups, right? Because we were killing the goats. There's no way around it. We were shooting the goats, um, and uh, so it's something we were concerned about. But you know, our response was: Listen, Galapagos is unique on the planet. The Galapagos has species that you find nowhere else on the planet, like the giant tortoises, the the, the land iguanas. Uh, uh, the marine iguanas and all kinds of other species, birds, uh, Darwin's finches and whatnot. And yet here we have some goats that we find all over the planet. They're, they're like, they breed like, a, like goats and they're, 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 they're driving these unique species extinct. They're driving the species for which Galapagos is famous for, for which in part they're recognized by the World Heritage Convention for. And so, you know, it was uh, basically for us a no brainer. We have to get rid of their goats. And the only way, because there were lots of goats and they were in very remote places with no roads, no running water, very difficult to access. The only way to get them we, we, was by helicopter and, and people on helicopters shooting them. It's not a lovely image. And a lot of people are shocked by that. But we just had to look at the alternatives and there were no alternatives if we wanted to save Galapagos. Yeah, and I think that that's something that a lot of different conservationists, uh, ecologists deal with around the world. That's not really talked about. I know that in Colombia, for example, they're dealing with an issue of hippos, specifically hippopotamus that were brought over by Pablo Escobar. Yes, I read about that. Amazing. Yeah, and this is something that it's hard to know what to do with them, but they are affecting the animals the the biodiversity in that region and so of course how what do you do about these animals obviously they're living breathing things but at the same time by not taking care of that issue uh at an early stage it can lead to the extermination of hundreds of other species right Exactly. So, so that brings me to what's going on in Galapagos now. Uh, tourism in Galapagos is a big, a big thing, and uh, the more there's people going back and forth from the continent to the islands and between the islands, the more of that happening, the more there's a chance that other species will make it to the islands. It could be just a little fly. It looks like a housefly. There's something called the uh, Philornis downsy. It looks like a housefly. It came in from probably on a plane by accident. And what it does, it lays its eggs in the nests of Darwin finches. And when those eggs hatch as a little caterpillar, they crawl around on the chicks and they start eating the chicks and they kill the chicks. So right now there's a real big issue. The the Darwin's finches are under a serious threat by these 
flies that were brought in by accident because planes are going back and forth. And who knows how many other types of insects or even disease or that don't exist in Galapagos could be brought over in the next plane or the boats. So the big challenge right now is, well, tourism is the reason why people live there, like 95% of the reason why people live there. And it's bringing people in back and forth. Yet and, and with each plane, with each that comes, there's a risk, right? And people in the islands, they bring food in from the continent. And while the country has established like phytosanitary protocols to try to reduce the, the risk, it's never risk-free. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's one of the challenges that Galapagos faces today. Right. Over tourism and, and just tourism in general, the movement of people and goods and vessels to the islands and back. You can totally see how there'd be a contamination there. And what you don't want to happen is what you mentioned earlier, what happened in Hawaii. You mentioned the word over tourism, and that's a good a good point. You know, uh, there's a lot of people thinking and talking about over tourism. What does over tourism mean? At one point, is it called over tourism? Who decides, right? It's not easy. But in Galapagos, I would say, you reach over tourism when it's you, you come to a point where it's affecting the very values for which the site was recognized as a world heritage, right? If you're starting to affect the, the, the welfare of the populations of those endemic species, then because of tourism, then you're into over tourism. And, and I, I just have to say that in Galapagos, there's two types of tourism. One is people arrive and they get on a cruise ship and they go around, visit the islands, and then and they leave. And another one, people arrive and they stay in local hostels or little hotels and they, they do day trips and they visit islands. They're both very valid ways of visiting the islands. Um, however, uh, the ship-based tourism is capped. The government has imposed an upper limit and there hasn't been uh, an, one iota of increase in the capacity of, the, of the, the expedition cruise ship fleet in almost 25 years. But the land-based tourism, there is no cap. So it has been growing some, just before COVID, of course. It was growing at up to 10% per year, wow. you know, for several years in a row. And, um, and uh, you know, as someone who's involved in Galapagos conservation for many years, I see that as the main issue right now. It's growing so fast, there's no cap on it, that, uh, you know, it's going to be impossible for the authorities to keep continuously keep a lid on the, re- the threat of the introduction and spread of a, of a new species, of alien species to the islands. So, you know, that's that's an issue. Uh, I think uh, the government has to do with land-based tourism what it so wisely did with the ship-based tourism. They have to put a cap on it. Now, obviously, this is something that you think they, they need to do in order to help preserve Galapagos' unique flora and fauna. I'm wondering what is being done that you think is is helping? Well, as a, for one, there was a cap imposed on the ship-based tourism. That's the first step. You can't talk about sustainable tourism if the numbers are just going up infinitely, right? You can't do that. If something that increases without end is not a sustainable uh, thing. So, uh, number one, the big thing they did back in 1998 was to impose a cap on ship-based tourism. Fantastic. So, notwithstanding the fact that they haven't yet had the courage, because politically it's not easy to put a cap on uh, land-based tourism, they've been imposing, uh, they've been uh, uh, putting into place, as I said earlier, phytosanitary protocols. So, you know, you can't just 
uh, fly in the Galapagos with a bag full of lettuce and, and, and radishes and fresh vegetables that you just pulled out of the ground, bringing it with dirt and soil and bringing it into Galapagos. You can't do that. You're going to control your suitcases. The ships that are carrying cargo into Galapagos, it's the, the way they manage the cargo and handle it is more is improving year by year so that they're, they're reducing the risk of bringing with that cargo more pathogens, more, uh, you know, uh, who knows, new species. Uh, that's what basically the main uh, job they do in terms of preventing the arrival of new species. But also the ability to deal with them once they've arrived is improved as well. You, I talked about the goats. We were able to remove the goats out of one island and the pigs from another island. We've been able to, the, the people there have been able, to, with the Charles Darwin Research Station and the park, they work together to develop new scientific methods to control other species. Cats have been a problem too, I have to say. Uh, wild cats are running around eating the baby iguanas, eating the birds, the land, the land nesting birds. You have to find a way to deal with that. Rats as well, they've been able to remove rats from other islands. But you know, once a species is there and it has proliferated, it is very difficult and very expensive to eliminate it. And sometimes you just cannot. So you can do your best by controlling it and spending tons of people in the field every year, lots of money to keep the numbers of that aggressive invasive species down. So the best thing to do is keep them from arriving in the first place, of course. So it's those three type of approaches, keep them from arriving, um, keep them and then eliminating them, eliminating them or controlling them once they're there. And also the third one is re-establishing populations on islands from which the species have been eliminated. So um, they've been able to develop a, a giant tortoise breeding center in, in the Galapagos and they've been able to re-establish populations of giant tortoises from islands from which they had almost all been eradicated in the past. So uh, there's different ways and different things to do, but the most effective one, of course, is don't let new species arrive in the first place. Overall, are you feeling positive and optimistic about the future of the islands and how it is dealing with these conservation challenges, or are you more concerned? Oh, Catalina, that's a, that's a question. I, I've been around a lot now and I've working at the World Hedges Center. I've been around the world and looking at natural sites and it's always an uphill battle. Always. Uh, the, uh, we win we win some battles, but the, the, the challenge never goes away. It's relentless. It's like the sea lapping uh, at your front door. Talk to the people who've been dealing with that recently. Um, you know, you can you can batten down the hatches, but if the sea keeps on pounding, you can't give up. You have to be there all the time. So am I optimistic? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm, 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 I'm hoping that, uh, you know, the government of Ecuador can take the necessary measures to reduce the risks of the arrival of new species. And, and one of that is putting a cap on the growth, the tremendous growth of land-based tourism. You know, obviously we've been speaking about over tourism and invasive species and the impact that that can have on the Galapagos. But I'm wondering if in your work, the impact of climate change to the islands ever came up. Well, climate change is, you know, everyone's talking about it. And it's, you know, the, 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 what I've read about it in Galapagos is, uh, you know, perhaps the El Nino event. You've heard of the El Nino, which if it's a, a very, very strong El Nino, could really have a hard impact on marine species. And I think of the Galapagos penguin. In the best of times, you know, when all is going well, there's only several hundred Galapagos penguins out there, maybe 500 or 800. It's not a huge number. And you find them nowhere else on the planet. But if you have a strong El Nino, they, the water gets hot. There's no more food for them and they starve. They don't make babies. So you can go from five or 600 penguins one year to 300 in the next year because they've all died. 
So what if you have two El Ninos in a row or three? Or what if an extra disease comes along uh, on top of that? So you can, you can see a, a scenario where the penguins can become extinct. Um, and so people are, some people seem to think that with uh, climate change, you might have more frequent and more intensive El Ninos. Um, the last big one we had in Galapagos that really had an effect was in 1998. So it's been a while. Uh, so I'm not, you know, sure how much right now. I don't see any hardcore evidence that, you know, uh, climate change will have an immediate impact in Galapagos. It's a longer term thing. And right now it's more, there's a lot of immediate issues that have to be dealt with before. I think we have to get too concerned about the long-term impacts of climate change. To wrap it up, I'd love to hear if you have a particular story about a time in the islands that really inspired you or some work that you did there that keeps you going against this uh, uphill battle that you so eloquently described? Well, you know, um, part of my job, this is great because my job uh, back then, and you know, I had to get on a boat, you know, for a couple of hours, reach the shores of an uninhabited island with a group of park rangers and, and um, you know, we would take our packs and uh, carry our water and hike up for several hours at the top of this island. And this is an island called Santiago Island, which is, which is, which at the time was just infested with goats. And uh, we got to the top, and as I said, it was like a golf course. You know, there's not a tree for miles. And uh, uh, about two or three years previous to that, the uh, the park and the Charles Darwin Research Station had put up a fence. They'd fenced off an area about a, about an acre. You know, a long fence that kept the goats out. And inside that fence, it was like lush forest. But all around the fence, it was like a golf course, like a desert, right? So we got a really graphic view, visual uh, 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 effect there, showing how, you know, with the goats, without the goats. Inside the fence is what Galapagos normally looks like. Outside, it was with goats. And um, so I, I was there, and, and eventually I left Galapagos. And, what, and after I left, they removed, they successfully removed all the goats from this island. And they sent me a picture of the same place. we, Because I had taken a picture of that fenced-in area with the forest with the golf course grass desert next to it. And then they sent me a picture from, taken from the same place about 10 years later. And it was the forest was growing back. It was growing back. You can almost not tell the difference between inside and outside the fence anymore. It was so encouraging. So that's a story that I share with you and your listeners here today, Catalina, about, you know, you can do some good work there. But all that costs money. Better not to have the goats in the first place. Oh, yeah. So important, the work that you have done to conserve what is a World Heritage Site. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Catalina. You can learn more about Mark and hundreds of other exceptional experts at rolliapp.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-A-P-P.com. I'm Catalina Villegas, and you can always connect with me on social media at Catalina Official. That's C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A-O-F-F-C-L on Twitter, IG, or Facebook. Until next time.